Good evening, everybody. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome you here this evening. Uh, my name is Nicola Lacey. I'm a school professor here at LSE in Law, Gender and Social Policy. And it's my real delight this evening to welcome our very distinguished uh, visitor, Shimuzu uh, visiting professor here, uh, but that's really the least of her qualifications because, as you can see, the Susanna Bear is a justice on the German Constitutional Court as well as being an extremely distinguished scholar. Uh, she is professor of public law and gender studies at the Humboldt University in Berlin, and she also holds a distinguished visiting chair at the University of Michigan, as well as having held many other prestigious visiting appointments. I'd like to just say a word of sort of personal welcome to Susanna. I had the great good fortune to meet Susanna. Mm. We were both in primary school at the time, of course. It's about 20, 25 years ago at least. Um, when I was trying to find my way around Berlin, where my husband had just moved to a job, and um, Susanna was trying to find her way into the German Legal Academy, which was no easy matter for uh, a, a young feminist scholar, no matter how brilliant. And in fact, Susanna at that time was about to go off and study in Michigan, which uh, I think was a very formative time for you, wasn't it? And then she came back to Berlin and made a really stellar uh, academic career. And I think a measure of what Susanna has achieved, which she's done uh, really with enormous grace and good humor, is uh, represented not only by her appointment to the court, but also by her success in establishing this interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary, as she puts it, uh, gender studies unit, as well as uh, being involved in running the Center for Law and Society in Berlin. Um, we all struggle in the academy with the question of how to accommodate uh, cross-disciplinary work in uh, an academy which in most countries remains highly discipline-based. And if you think, those of you who I know there are several German scholars in the audience, but probably most of the audience were trained here or in a common law jurisdiction, if you think our uh, disciplinary edifice is strong in this country. You ain't seen nothing yet. Um, in Germany, it really is very strong. And what's more, even within a law school, there's a tremendous set of institutional walls between subjects. Now, Susanna, technically, I think I'm right in saying, did her training as a public lawyer. But it took enormous uh, resources of not only intellectual vision and determination, but huge personal skill to create this interdisciplinary space at the Humboldt, where I had the great privilege of being a visitor. I know Renata Selexel over there has also visited probably several other people uh, in the room. It's been an enormous success, and it's a particular achievement. Uh, but of course, uh, then to be called to the Constitutional Court um, 
at a, a very young age for a, a term of 12 years. That's the standard term. I gather there's no time off for good behaviour. Possibly there could be time off for very bad behaviour, but Suzanne is definitely not going to uh, get any time off in that way, uh, where she is um, sort of about, well, you're less than, about, you're about halfway through your, your term. So we're really incredibly lucky to have Susanna with us this week. Um, she's going to be also talking more informally about her career, um, about the experience of being a, a, a relatively rare woman, the first openly gay woman on the um, Supreme, on the Constitutional Court in Karlsruhe, uh, in our legal biography project session at 12.30 tomorrow in the Moot Room up on the seventh floor of this building, and we're really looking forward to that. But first of all, we're very, very much looking forward to hearing um, your lecture, Rights Under Pressure, Practicing Constitutional Law in Turbulent Times. Susanna. So, Nikki, thank you so much. This was not only a generous uh, introduction, it's a generous invitation, and I'm delighted to be able to spend a week at this wonderful place. I already said to some people in the room that it is, particularly when you're an academic, transferring to the position of a justice, a true delight and in some interesting ways filled with some interesting sort of envy when you re-enter the academic sphere, a sphere of where you can pick your topics, where you can say what you want, basically, and I would even be the one to protect that you can say what you want as freedom of speech in the academic world, etc., etc., etc. But... You know, the advantages to the other side as well. However, I'm happy to be here for this week, and I, I'm grateful you're coming and willing to spend uh, a little bit of your precious time with uh, somebody thinking about a problem all judges or justices in the world, I think, do have at this moment in time. Because the question, how should courts react to crisis, is not a theoretical, abstract, somewhere out there, or historical question. It's very, very much on our desks every day. And I do not know what you see when you look around the world today. I see certainly many opportunities, and I do hope that particularly for the students and those in the middle of their careers, you do see a lot of opportunities. But I do also see crisis all over. So depending on the paper you read or the news you get, or you watch, which is the old-fashioned version, or the news feed you catch, the Twitter you follow, the online sites you visit, the even more media pre-selected reality of today, you will see many different things, but you cannot overlook crisis. There are the terror bombings in Paris and Brussels and Istanbul in the nearer distance next to Iraq, Burundi, Bangladesh, and there are terror warnings all over. There are tens of thousands of refugees on the Greek islands at the border of Macedonia on vessels in the Mediterranean. A British paper ran a headline recently that said, if the migrant crisis goes on like this, there may be no EU for Britain to leave. And all of this indicates crisis. Thousands of people fleeing from violence, the EU under imminent pressure reacting to this, and the risk of Britain leaving. Also, there are still alarming signs in financial markets. The global financial crisis has not passed away. So there is, and I only alluded to some of it, crisis all over. So I think we need to talk about law in such turbulent times. 
Can law still guarantee security, create stability, organize solidarity? That was the basic promise, right? Or has it become naive to hope for those civilizing forces of constitutionalism with its promise of democracy, the rule of law, fundamental human rights, when instead capitalism, colonialism, brutal warfare seem unlimited and unstoppable? Should we be realistic and forget about it, really? Or isn't crisis exactly the moment of the law, with its promise of stability, foreseeability, and guidance? And even more specifically, is not crisis exactly the time for fundamental legal guarantees, human rights, fundamental individual rights, democracy, legal protection, due process, in short, what is generally termed constitutionalism, with and without a written constitution and with and without specialized constitutional courts? Isn't that exactly the moment when we turn to the law? So some say it's easy to follow the law in fair weather, but what about stormy times? I want to take a look at rights under pressure from the perspective of a sitting justice at a constitutional court. Some know this as Karlsruhe because this became the label of what we're doing. And I do so because the crisis I mentioned put pressure on constitutional and supreme courts and human rights courts who have the mandate to adjudicate those very fundamental legal guarantees, democracy, fundamental human rights. Rights under pressure because of such crisis is a real problem for judges and justices around the world. And I do worry about that. And it is difficult. And there is no one answer. And so I do only want to describe how we try to address these phenomena out there in this world. And I do know certainly that the question I address here is a classic. It can be posed in Latin, and I cannot do this with the British accent, fiat justitia et periat mundus, or in loose translation, there shall be justice even if the world falls apart. Does this mean stick to the law no matter what? In the Weimar Republic, the early German attempt that miserably failed in the 1930s in terms of democracy, scholars fought each other in what was called the Methodenstreit, the methodological quarrel over the right juridical method, but in fact they also fought about that very issue, stick to the law no matter what, or change your approach to law, your application of law, your take on law, depending on what's going on around you. Today the question is posed mostly, at least differently, in light of a separation of powers. How far should courts go? What is their role? And what is for others, parliament, the executive, who else? Some discussions around the politics of judging seem to suggest that there is, in fact, an either-or answer to that question, how should courts react to crisis. Either you exercise judicial power on the past, present, and future with a response um, and thus engage in judicial activism, or you turn to the past only and practice restraint, activism or restraint, either-or. Systems theorists like Niklas Luhmann would have said, typically for lawyers, they cannot think another way, either-or the legal code, legal, illegal, but it certainly does not capture what we do. So I want to draw attention to the details. What we do, what supreme or constitutional or human rights courts do, is neither activism nor restraint. Instead, 
I propose to consider our rulings as what I would want to call politically and socially conscious if you want a realist way of judging in turbulent times and a practice of one, what one may want to call embedded constitutionalism. This is indeed quite the opposite of doctrinal positivism or legal formalism. And to be sure, that option exists in practice. In fact, to stick to the law no matter what is really tempting for a judge or justice. To deliver law's promise of stability and foreseeability solid as a rock, that sounds like the heroism you expect from courts, maybe. It caters, at least, to a deeply held belief in and a commitment to reason, to the rule of law, to the value of positive, textually-based law. It suggests reliability with an emphasis on text that tends to purify words from meaning and an emphasis on original intent or the will of parliament, if you may, which, in fact, is constructed as such always, and a skepticism as to the notion of a living constitution or living human rights documents. But this sticking to the law, solid as a rock, may be, I think, either naive or dangerous or an ideology, but certainly not the reality of the practice of adjudication. And also note that a commitment to reason should not be taken as a belief in pure doctrine. So I certainly am committed to reason, but not to a purely formalistic view of pure doctrine. Grand theorists of reasoning, and as a German I have to mention Immanuel Kant, knew that. What I call for is to take a closer look at the details of practicing law in a court, because there is a need to certainly move beyond the grand labels of either activism or restraint, either formalism or criticism, etc., etc. We need refined and nuanced concepts to meet the challenges of constitutionalism in practice today. So what I would like to do is emphasize three essentials of what I hope to be a proper attitude to react to crisis when rights are under pressure. First, certainly, democracy. In Britain... That may sound like, yeah, what else? In Germany, that's a statement. My constitution starts with a chapter on fundamental rights. Then comes the principle of democracy, rule of law, and the welfare state. In a constitutional design like Germany and France and many, many other countries, to state democracy first as a judge of a specialized constitutional court is also a statement of sorts. I could have said the law. No. First, democracy, and I mean it. Rights are, according to that component of the three reactions to pressures on constitutionalism today, rights are neither fantasy nor trump cards, but uh, they are the products of and need to be constantly reassessed in democratic politics. So when we talk rights, according to that reaction, we always talk democracy. And this is, again, not an either-or distinction or tension, but it's a combined effort to react to the challenges out there. Second, the social dimension. Basically, a categorical distinction between liberties on the one hand and social rights on the other is not convincing. Instead, it is informed by an ideology of inequality, which is, in fact, the normalcy of privilege. Instead, to properly respond to the crisis in which people suffer, we need to recognize that all rights necessarily have a social dimension. 
And the third component is embedded constitutionalism. National courts have to apply the law of the land. But neither the German Federal Constitutional Court nor any other national court with a mandate to adjudicate national law and the national constitution are alone in the world. They've never been. But today, that is more of a legal, practical reality than ever. The crisis I mentioned are global, and the law has to react to that. This calls on courts to embed national law in their regional and global context. So let me elaborate a little bit on those three components, democracy, the social dimension of each and every right, including particularly liberties, and embedded constitutionalism. First, I will, I will do this in three steps. And first, I will briefly revisit some crises that put pressure on rights to look at what they are exactly, because it's way easier to call on your, you know, faint news memory that you know, there's crisis all over than to start looking at what exactly constitutes those crises and what makes them difficult in legal terms. Second, let me describe how we try, we as a court, Karlsruhe, try to react to these crises as a national constitutional court. And I will use the example of the asylum seekers benefit ruling, a court's reaction to, in fact, the pressure, or whatever you would want to call it, of refugees flooding into the country, which is also already, in terms of my uh, wording, a problematic statement. But I will get back to the intricacies of even describing the facts in such a case. Third, I will address some of the criticism all highest court regularly encounter, namely judicial activism. You know the punchlines from different sides, by the way, of the political spectrum. There are those who say that courts overstep their mandate and judges should not run the world instead of the legislature or the executive. And there are those who call the law endlessly indeterminate and ideological business not to be trusted anyway, since that's why courts should not run the world, because that's too dangerous to take. And I, in fact, believe quite to the contrary. Yes, indeed, after five years of doing it on the federal constitutional court in Germany and as a critical legal scholar called a radical feminist before the vote was taken to put me on the bench, which is still, I think, noteworthy, I tell you, do not forget about the law. Do not forget about the law. Be as critical as you can, but do not forget about the very design, institutional qualities, and power of the law particularly in times of crisis. Do not leave power unchecked, thus to others and often in the wrong hands. In particular, defend fundamental human rights. As key ingredients of constitutionalism today, define human rights in light of democracy in their political and social context and embedded in the world. There was never a time where this was more needed. At least that's what it feels like looking at the cases we get every day. So first, what are the crises we face? and what turns them into pressure on rights and eventually pressure on courts and on judges. Certainly pressure comes in different types and each may call for a specific reaction. I focus on external pressures. There are internal ones as well, but I'm under somewhat of a legal obligation not to talk about those in public. So I focus on external pressures that are an effect of larger socioeconomic and thus political crisis. And crisis is not just another political problem. 
This is why the pressure on rights and courts is more than the usual effect of a separation of powers of checks and balances. There's generally a tension out there. But when I talk crisis, I talk about a sudden development with negative consequences in which we do not know how to act efficiently and how to counter that situation of insecurity and doubt. And more importantly, crisis is not something out there. It is a situation in which people suffer. The euro crisis is a situation in which people suffer. The refugee crisis puts that right in front of your door. The imagery is out there. But with all the crises I mentioned, it's a situation in which people suffer. Not all do, to be sure, but enough people suffer to count as too many. And courts have, first and foremost, to deal with that. So the... German Federal Constitutional Court, Karlsruhe, has been confronted with some of these big crises I mentioned already. There is the Eurozone crisis, or European debt crisis, 2009 onwards, by now chronic. You know the facts. Things looked very tricky. The hegemonic story is markets collapsed, there was a turmoil at the stock exchange, the ECB, the European Central Bank, announced free unlimited support and a bailout from established mechanisms, the so-called outright monetary transaction. Then the market calmed down, we are told. What also happened, unemployment and poverty strived, and there was a breakdown of state-run services in many countries. Indeed, people still suffer. And in addition, the monetary crisis and reactions to it fuel a political crisis with landslide election gains by nationalistic right-wing parties across Europe, including an alarming and historically somewhat new occurrence in Germany. Some of this, transformed into briefs and files, comes to my court or came to my court. Citizens argued their rights were violated by a government selling them to an EU that has to save Greece. Minority parties argued that the government disregarded parliament in taking decisions in small committees rather than bring them to plenary sessions. They wanted an emergency injunction. The call was basically on the court, in my case, 16 justices, in this case, eight justices sitting in a Senate. The call on those eight people was basically to stop the EU, or at least to stop Germany in the EU, and to stop the European Central Bank. It indeed felt like pressure. Intense public attention adding to that feeling. Rumors that key players threatened to leave the room if I hear someone refer to Karlsruhe again. It's a very famous (laughs) statement often cited throughout the papers. Enough, and I have a sense of humor, but these are moments where I'm challenged. (laughs) Enough economic sense among us to see that economic actors waited for and would react to the ruling as would would politics, as would people. So how should a court react to that situation? Should it stick to the text or an always constructed original idea of the drafters of a constitutional clause on European integration long before all that happens? Should consequences matter on the stock market, for the national budget, for life in Greece, or for the political state of the European Union, new Eastern members and an old and cherished member pondering to leave? And if that all looks really dangerous, should the justices bow to that reality? Or should they be solid as a rock? Another crisis. Terror, 9-11, Charlie Hebdo, Bataclan, Copenhagen, Ankara, Istanbul, Brussels, to stay in the region. 
Attacks leaving so many dead and spreading fear for all others. Utoya in Norway. The series of right-wing NSU murders and arson attacks on refugee homes in Germany. Courts have to deal with this too. Terrorism was brought to us, again, in the form of briefs and files, when civil rights activists and liberal politicians argued that laws on data transfer between police and security agencies were unconstitutional. So how should a court react to that call? Should it stick to the well-established, in Germany, well-established doctrine of informational self-determination, data privacy, the right to data privacy, including a right to be forgotten from the files, and the principle of separation of data to prevent an Orwellian surveillance state? Should the judges be driven by the risk of losing respect, the only thing we have, without the power of the person's word, if under the immediate impression of terror, privacy keeps police from finding a suspect? Should the court change its jurisprudence because the threat is more imminent today? Or should it stick to the classics and be the hero out there, finally the defender of fundamental rights? Should the court react to terrorism at all? And if so, how? We just a few days ago, actually, held that the act governing federal police data is a legitimate interference, a legitimate interference, with the right to informational self-determination, but that it is not legitimate on all counts, and struck these down. So we upheld a bit and struck down another bit. The Minister of the Interior stated that we have doubts, we have doubts, he does not share, and that the judgment does not make the fight against terror easier but that he has to live with this now, accept and respect what the court said. Should we be more lenient next time and yield to the pressure on privacy rights after Brussels? After all, it is of the interest of everyone in Europe what we do there, because the exchange of data protects London, Berlin, all places out there. Are we supposed to take note of this and you know, yield because the danger is more imminent more threatening? The third crisis, labeled refugees. Things get more complicated by the minute. With terrorism in its hegemonic interpretation reduced to Islamist terror and quickly connected in more or less racist moves to refugees from Muslim countries. In addition, it is connected to the future of our polity. The head of the United Nations Refugee Agency said in September 2015 that now the EU faces a defining moment. He added, exceptional circumstances require an exceptional response. Business as usual will not solve the problem. Does business as usual include the rule of law? When pressure arises, should we abandon the law for a moment just to you know, react properly, quickly enough? Should we leave that path? Or are constitutional and human rights called for in exactly that moment, the bastions we should stick to, the old rules? When refugees start being sent to Turkey, and this is translated again into files and briefs in front of a court, how should the judges react? When cases are brought to us to again order the government to really close the borders, and this is done, what should we do? Okay, you can say, you know, you judge. Read the Constitution. I always carry mine with me. Read the Constitution. <laughs> apply it. That's it. But, you know, you're studying at LSE and you're working it. You're not naive. That's not going to do it. So, I mean it. What should we do? How much of these developments should we take into account? 
How much should we stick to way older doctrine, principles, text? All of these developments pose structurally the same question. How should the law meet the challenge of insecurity, social tension, disintegration, crisis? And there are many reactions to this, I believe, in today's court's practice. Some appear rather technical in nature, but are tremendously important. That's why I advise everyone to focus on procedural law. It's a key ingredient of what you can do in these situations. Details matter since courts do much more than simply uphold or strike down legislation or an act of government. They order it void for a while, define intermediate action, limit reach, define bottom lines, procedural requirements, and so forth. And there's more to that. I would like to focus on the substantive kind of reactions to the crisis I mentioned. In what is called the Euro crisis, and which is in fact a crisis people in fact suffer from, Karlsruhe, short in this case for the second Senate of my court, did in fact intervene. First and foremost, it emphasized national democracy, national democracy as a reaction to a purely transnational, if not global, crisis, even in turbulent times and even in post-national governance networks. The court insists on the rule of law, the other component, because this is how the will of the people is transferred into politics, and insists on the rule of law and procedure and the whole bit even and again in times of efficiency, need, pressure, etc., etc., etc. In addition, in those judgments, there is an attempt to contribute to a larger European understanding of democracy in those times. We insist on a core meaning of constitutionalism that cannot be sold to any international setting, neither the EU nor any other. It is called identity control, and it's the last reserve the court applies. But all power beyond that identity control reserve has to be democratic. All actors need to adhere to the law, and the court checks on that. Not in national isolation, but cooperating in Europe in a dialogue among courts and other actors in a practice one may call embedded constitutionalism. So there was a reaction there, and there was an attempt to re- structure and reposition oneself as a national court only in a transnational, post-national setting. Regarding terrorism, the court does also intervene and keeps intervening. By now, there's a long line of rulings on anti-terrorism measures. Again and again, the court took the acts in question to the proportionality test. And to be sure, this is way more than balancing security and liberty. Proportionality moves in various complicated steps and does a, different, does a different task. And noticeably, there is a reaction to terror, to recent terror, because there is recently an emphasis, a clear and visible emphasis in those judgments that the fight, and explicitly not the war against terror, the fight against terror by police means, not war means, is extremely important and is certainly a legitimate concern to be pursued. But there's also, at the very same time, an emphasis that fighting terror does not justify all means. Again, the court tries to emphasize baseline requirements and the need to respect human rights, even in international data transfer, and tries to thus create an adequate reaction to the new challenges out there in a mix of staying true to the baselines but taking into account the, what you may call discourse, but actually political realities out there. 
And I assure you that in deliberations, it was very clear that we do apply law in turbulent times and that there is pressure on us. We get the news. But this does not mean we yield to them unconditionally. Rather, the response is what I would call politically and socially contextualized and globally embedded jurisprudence. Because again, we base our judgments on the national constitution, but certainly look at it what we call in light of all kinds of international commitments. So finally, refugees. Many courts have to react to this crisis already transformed into files. In Britain, there are several rulings that come to mind, protecting sexual minorities from persecution, the question of whether welfare benefit caps discriminate against women, because it's a welfare issue as well. And in that case, in Britain, the majority of your court stated that the question of proportionality involves controversial issues of social and economic policy with major implications for public expenditure, which are, they argued, not for court. So the majority said, hands off, and reacted to certainly turbulent times. The question again is, and the question in that case was between the majority and the dissenting justices, when are decisions for court to take in those situations and when not? We in our court had to decide on asylum seeker benefits in 2012. A refugee complained that the amount of cash benefits paid according to that law was evidently insufficient. And the court agreed in a, what is rather typical for us, anonymous decision, 8-0. In that decision, after public hearings to which we invite the parties and government as well as NGOs and experts in the field, we declared the Asylum Seekers Benefits Act unconstitutional. Yet to not leave refugees with nothing, because if we strike down a law, they don't get anything because there's no law to base the cash benefits on, the court also ordered the regular welfare rules to apply as long as no new scheme was passed. So what is that? Judicial activism? It is certainly a costly decision. Somebody has to pay these amounts, and we, in fact, raise them. Is this socialism from the bench? It is certainly a move cherished by those who later created what was known in Germany as the welcoming culture, uh, inviting refugees to seek a safe haven in a country which has historically denied this to way too many. Is it a national intervention and an arrogant one into a global problem? Well, it is a national intervention into a global problem. As usual, most problems these days are beyond the national dimension only and have their post-national components. It is part of an international search to share the burden of forced migration, yes. But again, those kind of catchy labels, socialist activism, overstepping your mandate, et cetera, et cetera, I think do not catch the complexity of the problem. Instead, again, I would like to briefly look at the three components of this response, democracy, the social dimension of liberties, and embedded constitutionalism. What exactly did we try to do? The court held that the amount of benefits, welfare benefits, cash benefits, paid to refugees to be evidently insufficient. The ruling is based doctrinally on dignity, the right to human dignity, but at the very same moment we emphasize democracy in their judgment. Because we said certainly it is for the legislature 
and not for judges or justices to define the level of welfare benefits and to distribute the budget. Judges know that. In fact, I think there are questions that should stay in the political realm, and I would be happy not to get them in my files. I would be delighted if the legislature would take care of them. Interestingly, there are problems which are kind of sent to the court, and maybe it's politically interesting for some to have us do this, you know, mess, and others, you know, be able to criticize us. But I was, and again, and I was sworn in to uphold the Constitution and decide a case when it is legitimately brought to me. Whatever my theoretical leanings, whatever my personal attitude is, restrained or activist or, you know, heroic image of myself as the future da-da-da-da-da, professionally, I'm bound to the law, and I have to apply it. That's my job. I cannot refuse to deliver the promise of legal protection against every act of authority. I have to decide. However, this decision certainly does not replace politics. We applied the human right to dignity, but the court also stated clearly that, again, it's for the legislature to fill that with life, to define the details. We understand the Constitution to give people a fundamental right to the fundamental, to the guarantee of a dignified minimum existence. We said a fundamental right to the guarantee of a dignified minimum existence. And in terms of legal doctrine, we read the right, the individual fundamental right to human dignity in conjunction with the principle of the welfare state and democracy. And such principles are obligations on the state to deliver on the promise of fundamental rights. As a result, there is no fundamental rights in a constitutional court to a cash benefit. That has been confusing in the public to a degree, but that is not there. But there is a right to be considered by the legislature when in need, or you may say the Constitution does guarantee that no one will be left behind. This is the meaning of fundamental individual rights in democratic states. Nobody left behind, nobody excluded, nobody disprivileged to a degree that human dignity is violated. Not to be mistaken, though, the German constitution is not a communist or socialist manifesto. It is a liberal constitution crafted in the post-1945 consensus. It is pretty much in tune with the United Nations Human Rights Convention, with the later European Convention of Human Rights, by now with the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union. It is different from some other constitutions in Latin America and in Southern Europe, where way more promises of social rights are in the text. The German basic law is not like those texts. It does not promise a lot because it only wanted to promise after Weimar what is enforceable. So how come again that a court applies that liberal, only liberties, constitution and decides to strike down benefits but not to bury the idea of benefits, that could happen, and in fact orders more money for people in need? The ruling is based on an understanding of fundamental rights in social context, and that's the important second component. The starting point is, I guess known to many of you, rights stay on the books if you do not consider what people need, in fact, to use them. Liberties are abstract promises. In fact, liberties perpetuate privilege if you do not consider their material base. 
This is, by the way, what radical legal theories teach us, feminist, critical race, queer, post-colonial, that the patterns of privilege inform what rights, in fact, mean. So if a court is not blind to those realities, it should take it into account, thus socially contextualize the application of liberties to a case. That material or social basis of liberty is, we held in that and several other decisions, life, physical and spiritual, alone and with others, health, housing, effort and talent-based access to education, a chance to make a living, sustain a decent life if you can't, etc., etc., etc. If you lack the material conditions, the baseline is, you will not be free, let alone happy. This is not what our Constitution promises. Pursuit of happiness is for others, but... Social context matters, at least, as the material condition to make use of liberties, to make sense of law for people in real lives. And because of that, the court argued that the right to human dignity to be treated as a human being with equal respect is not an abstract promise. This right, the ruling says, and I quote, encompasses both the physical existence of a human being as well as the possibility to maintain interpersonal relationships and a minimal degree of participation in social, cultural, and political life. That's, according to the consensus in the Senate, the definition of human dignity in some sort of social reality. We emphasized in that judgment that German and for- Germans and foreign nationals who reside in Germany are both entitled to this. And we stated that however you differentiate between needs, because people have different needs, you may not and never discriminate against anyone. Differentiate, yes. Discriminate, no. This is sometimes called applying or thinking about the objective dimension of fundamental rights, socially contextualize the otherwise abstract or empty promise liberties. Last not least, the ruling intervenes in affairs that are not strictly national, clearly. In what I tend to call an example of embedded constitutionalism, this practice urges us to react not only to the refugee crisis, but more generally to the pressure of what has been called globalization or what I tend to call the debordering of national legal regimes, the challenges of legal pluralism today. As in the Euro judgments, we make a point not to act in isolation. To be sure, again, as a national constitutional court, I apply the basic law and nothing else. I was sworn to do that. That's my mandate. That's my job. But we also interpret that very core key legal identity document, the national constitution, in light of ratified international obligations and we look for the consequences of our decisions beyond borders. This is why I call it embedded constitutionalism. It's still applying national law in a national court, but it's deeply embedded or tries to embed itself in a much wider post-national context. In the Asylum Seekers Benefits ruling, then, we did invite, and that's only one indicator of that practice, as experts, among others, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the German Institute for Human Rights, and Amnesty International, because we wanted to know more than just the baseline of civil society activities on the ground in Germany. We wanted to have a post-national perspective, even from the expertise. 
In the decision, the court then stated that the legislature is, and I quote, obliged by further requirements beyond the national constitution emerging from the law of the European Union and from international obligations. And it explained to the legislature, the rules applicable in Germany to ensure the minimum existence include the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, etc., 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 and mentioned the ratified international conventions and obligations, which need to be applied on the basis of the human right to dignity to fill that with life, considering all other legal obligations out there. So doing this, we attempt to respond to an international crisis and to legal pluralism, post-national legal pluralism, with, yes, German law, but embedded in the rules of a European and global human rights community. Now, certainly, as you may imagine, there is critique, and there's always critique in whatever we do. Well, let me put it that way. Judging is not for those who seek applause. Mm -hmm. In particular, constitutional and human rights jurisprudence is always under attack in that it stops not just anyone. There's not just some party losing but in fact, it is designed to stop powerful actors from getting their way. Those in power like you much more if you do not intervene. But that is not what such courts are made for. So we did not let that law pass. So there's criticism. And there's media-driven criticism, and there's power behind that criticism. These are not the weak voices. There's agency, too. So one question might be, would we do it again? This was 2012, critique, rising pressure, rising situation, different political landscape changing. If pressure rises, how should court react? Again, what do you expect of us, or the judges, the law, to deliver? Let me briefly and finally take up the key lines of criticism as three major concerns out there regarding such decisions. They mirror in some way, the three components I mentioned. Democracy, the one component, and there is the lamento against judicial activism on the other side. The social dimension of liberty I mentioned, and there is the critique of courts messing with the budget, and there is globally embedded constitutionalism, which poses the very complicated question of why Karlsruhe or global justice with national courts adjudicating the standards. So maybe the best-known critique of supreme and constitutional courts in those matters carries the label of judicial activism and results in a call for judicial restraint. It is the critique of judicialization of politics because of the gouvernement des juges, a juristocracy of, and I quote, judges who want to run the world from the bench in an act of self-aggrandissement. Some of this critique is, I have to say, very helpful it is a reminder of the power entrusted in us, but some is also simplistic polarization, and I do think some of it is dangerous. It is, I think, much more productive to analyze the rise and fall of judicial power than engage in this either-or game and understand the very factors that inform it at times. It is, I think, way too easy to point to judges and their specific lack of legitimacy, and way more interesting to think about variations of governance and variations of legitimation. 
At least, I think, academics should not follow the rationale of media reporting where it is way more interesting to start bashing a highest court for a ruling with strong words and catchy phrases than describe a complicated challenge and analyze an even more complicated answer. So, not to be misunderstood, be critical, be harsh even, but paint the larger picture in terms of, I suggest, power. Who exactly profits from a ruling and who exactly loses when we decide what we decide beyond losing the immediate case? When it comes to fundamental human rights, mostly those who lose are those otherwise in charge. Fundamental rights rulings, in fact, restrain those in power the more active a court. And the more restrained a court, the more unlimited the power of the executive and the majority in parliament, willing and able to crush minorities out there, or the power of private corporation. It's your choice whose power you favor, endorse, and like more for the social fabric of your future lives, but simply put, to counter one slogan, if judges do not run the world as limited, responsive, specifically restrained actors, who exactly does run it? Critique, I think, often has a political agenda in these contexts. The very idea of constitutionalism, I think, is to check on power, so control power is what I believe courts have to do. The second component of the benefits case is the social dimension of liberties. And certainly this invites criticism as well. After all, again, the court messes with the budget. The budget is the core and key domain of parliament. So how could one explain and even defend that? It is, I think, indeed a tricky question. Because is it for the courts, really, these days, to uphold and define the minimum standard of living? And if so, how are courts to do that? These are economic questions. Isn't that judicial activism then taken to the extremes, including some academic disciplinary arrogance that we feel fit to calculate whatever's out there? And again, I suggest it may be worthwhile to look at the details. In the Asylum Seekers Benefits ruling, the German Federal Constitutional Court did not set new standards of living. It did not hand out money. In fact, the court struck down a law, that's its mandate, that defined the amount of financial benefits for people to ensure a dignified life. And that law had not been changed for 19 years, 19 years with costs rising throughout the time. And it was invented in the beginning already to, you know, make refugees not come to the country. The government did not even try to defend that. So we took this as a rare incident of an evident violation of basic human rights standards. In all other cases, and there were already some additional cases on the matter, we look at how government argues and defends to differentiate between needs rather than discriminate, because discrimination is out of the picture, and will not intervene if not really evidentially necessary. So the judgment certainly affects the budget, but it does not freely define welfare standard, standards, but then orders the parliament's decision, which it had taken earlier for Germans, to apply. So again, does this overstep the mandate of a constitutional court? 
Or is it a proper reaction, or at least an attempt to properly react to turbulent times with millions of refugees and to economic pressures, which in fact hit the poorest and weakest in society first? Is it activism, or is it a reminder of the fundamental rights commitment and solidarity, a fundamental notion of our societies? One could also, again, consider whether governments indeed like that a lot, that a court takes the politically very difficult decision to distribute money among people in favor of those least favored by way too many. At least then there's someone to blame, and it's the eight people sitting there in Karlsruhe. You know, that's a nice target. One may also look at such a decision as protesting the inflation of human rights. We refused in that decision to sell fundamentals to economics. I think the euro judgments can also be read in that light. We refuse to sell fundamentals to economics. This is why I tend to call this socially conscious jurisprudence. We need to protect fundamental rights, yes. We need to take budgetary restraints seriously. And we asked in our proceedings, we asked government representatives, can you carry the costs? What will it do to your budget if we say this? We were not, you know, we were not surprising them with this but we only directly intervene if there's a really evident violation of the basic guarantees. So finally, in doing so, we are not alone. Constitutional and supreme and human rights courts are today not only embedded in their region and in the world, the refugee benefits decision is in this sense not at all exceptional, luckily. The Portuguese port, as an example, struck down cuts in pension rights, and the Italian court did as well, and they issued rulings on the matter which did not only take on their national uh, uh, legislature's will, but they took on the Troika. They took on the EU regime on rebalancing their, their national economy. In fact, there are many more rulings out there that react to more than a national setting and a national case. And in fact, this may be the trickiest challenge of constitutionalism today and tomorrow. Again, there the question is, in my case, Karlsruhe. Why Karlsruhe? And in many other questions, it's why London, Paris, Brussels, the site of national courts. Why should a national court decide issues that have clear international implications? Today, globalization produces cases in national or even local courts that affect many others and rulings that reach way beyond the nation state. I think this is a key challenge. It's known to courts like Strasbourg, the Human Rights Courts, the European Convention of Human Rights Courts, but they have the formal mandate to be larger than only their site. Strasbourg has a mandate for 47 states. They're used to that risky business, and they're used to very harsh reactions, including reactions from Britain. But what about national courts adjudicating international matters like Karlsruhe, Madrid, Lisbon, London? without the formal mandate to do that. When the German court came down with the Maastricht Treaty or the Lisbon Treaty rulings and with a sequence of decisions related to the euro, there were harsh reactions to what was seen as German arrogance. Why Karlsruhe? When we decided that international security data transfer is bound to human rights standards, some said, how come we define constitutional limits of what agencies can do to fi in fighting terror to protect all of us, including in London, way beyond German territory? 
And when we assess rights of refugees, be it benefits or asylum procedures or subsidiary protection from being deported, how are we to understand and conceptualize and in fact adjudicate matters that reach way beyond the jurisdictional space we formally cover? In Germany, we are now confronted with media reporting stating a war of the judges a clash of courts, a competition for the last word, etc. Because today there's Karlsruhe, Strasbourg, Luxembourg, etc. Some even say that national constitutional law has come to an end. I can tell you I have things to do, and I will keep having <laughs> things to do for the next seven years. But national law come to an end. There's growing political pressure to roll back, to renationalize, to even leave the EU as put the referendum here, and advocated by the new right-wingers in Germany. We had elections, I mentioned this, with strong gains for, no coincidence, racist and sexist and homophobic and decisively anti-European platforms. How should we react to that pressure? Go national again? Remove ourselves from that tricky, post-national, complicated, I don't know what scene? or defend fundamental rights, even in those settings, or yield? I think we need answers to that question more and more often in the future. And again, constitutional and supreme and human rights courts have by now developed a repertoire, I think that's what I wanted to describe, a repertoire of responding to pressure on rights. How best to do this is not a question of either activism or restraint. It's a challenge on several counts, socially conscious, politically sensitive, jurisprudentially strong, internationally embedded. As such, adjudication, and in particular fundamental rights decisions in times of crisis remain a risky business. Such rulings define the bottom line no matter what, but they can't be naive or ignorant or blind. And because of that, courts with a mandate to apply constitutional law and fundamental human rights are, to a degree, an endangered species. There are many examples. Look at Turkey, where the court ordered the release of two newspaper editors, reopened social media, and allowed access to information for corruption investigations, and is directly attacked by lead government officials. Look at Hungary. Look at Poland. Courts went too far there in the eyes of government. The German court to be sure, went through such harsh times historically as well. There were waves of criticism. But if you ask the journalists, the bloggers, the court did its job. If you ask refugees in Germany, I assume they would say the same. The court did its job. And interestingly, they would also say they didn't deliver what we dreamed of. We didn't get what we really wanted. We wanted more. But the court, after all, defended a basic standard of what it means to be human in this world today in light of national as well as international commitments we cherish as human rights. So if people criticize the courts as going too far, playing legislature, messing with the budget, or shaping issues beyond our jurisdiction, this may be, I think, playing with fire. The more often you hear that a court should shut up, be more restrained, hold back, the more I think those profit who want their power left unchecked. Certainly and again, this is not to say that the critics should shut up. Not at all. A court 
and people in those positions are in desperate need of nuanced critique, of a reminder of what we're doing, and of ideas of how it could be done better. We need a nuanced assessment of complicated challenges, but catchy phrases, the either-or distinctions, the fast, you know, block thing, that does not help as much. In fact, it sometimes feeds into a problematic state of affairs and political endangered situations, constitutional courts, Supreme Courts, and human rights courts are often in. I think we need to discuss what is appropriate in reacting to pressure on rights then in turbulent times. And I hope I contributed to that conversation. Thank you very much for listening. Susanna, thank you so much. That was a marvelous lecture, and I'm sure there are going to be some questions if you're happy to take some. We have probably about 20 minutes, and we have two uh, stewards very kindly going to move around with the microphones. What I'm going to do, if this is all right for you, is take at least a couple of questions at a time uh, to, to make sure that you know, plenty of people get a chance to contribute. Um, and I'd like to ask those of you who would like to ask a question, if you would briefly introduce yourselves to Susanna uh, before asking your question. So, who would like? So, I'm going to just make a list. So, we'll start with this gentleman here, and then we'll go to you, and then Joe, and then you. But we'll, I think we'll take two, and then we'll have, let Susanna come in, and then we'll take the next two. Hi, my name's Leon. I'd just like to say what a fantastic talk, and uh, I support with a lot, a lot of what you're saying there. There's two things I disagree with, though. Uh, with, there is no UK constitution. There are just random pieces of paper in Parliament and other, and other areas of the hierarchy, and they are interpreted almost on, upon a whim. And that, that is not a constitution. That is a stab at uh, a crime against any real UK constitution. And because of that, therefore, we don't live in a democracy because the democracy must be underpinned by a proper UK uh, constitution. And at the moment, uh, in our parliament, the UK, uh, the UK parliament is uh, dominated by the, the crown and uh, the religion, religious groups. To make, to make my point, the fact that when we swear in to become PMs, uh, uh, ministers, uh, you, you, the ministers don't swear an oath to the people. They swear an oath to the Crown, which is, again, is a stab at... C can uh, I just uh, ask you to, to get to a question? Do you uh, agree with uh, my uh, views upon the fact we don't have a constitution here and we do not have a democracy? Do you agree with that or not? And if so, why? Thank you. Uh, hello, uh, Ewan McGahey from King's College London. Uh, likewise, I thought it was a really enjoyable talk. Um, I, I'm also, I was also once a Humboldt student, so it's even better because I, I missed your lectures there. Uh, so it's re really nice to uh, see you here. Um, uh, I, I think one of the main messages in your talk was that one of the functions of a, of a judge in a constitutional court, uh, that there was a lot of language about standing up to power. You know, you know what, what, who is exercising power if the judges don't, and particularly you highlighting majorities in parliament or private corporations, actors like that. Uh, I'd be very interested to know uh, what your thoughts are on courts themselves abusing power. Uh, so I would 
uh, suggests that some of the worst violations of fundamental human rights have come from the U.S. Supreme Court over the last 40 years, uh, particularly in campaign finance reform, uh, legitimization of torture. So either actively perpetuating massive human rights abuse or being utterly complicit in it. Uh, we can see something obviously a lot weaker in the European Court of Justice, but uh, Viking Laval attacks on collective bargaining, the legitimization of uh, austerity throughout southern Europe. Um, uh, and, uh, of course, one of the great scholars in the LSE, Otto Kahn Freund, was a judge who fled Berlin after writing an article about how uh, the um, uh, Reichsarbeitsgericht had uh, essentially pursued a fascist doctrine in the 1920s. So courts can be the sum of the worst abusers of human rights. So my question is, uh, as well as sort of uh, controlling the power of, of the actors that you mentioned, uh, what strategies can there be to tackling courts uh, in situations like with the U.S. Supreme Court uh, until they get a judge change or the European Court of Justice? Thanks very much. Would you like to take those two uh, small matters? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 thank you for the generous <laughs> reaction. Um, I, I will not get into the debate of UK constitutionalism because I'm not an expert. There are many experts in this room. Uh, my impression is that this is a democratic country, and my impression is also, and this is a lesson derived from uh, comparative studies and looking at transnational or post-national situations that the term constitutionalism encompasses a concept which can be applied to many situations which may not resemble my favorite home, Britain, basic law, German-designed, kills in court situation. So uh, I will am at least somebody very willing to look at any country where fundamental rights are respected, where the rule of law is in place, uh, where elections happen regularly and may promote a change in government um, as a country or a setting uh, bound by modern constitutionalist standards. But that's as much as I can say, and I think then you have an interesting discussion in your country in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, the question regarding the functions of the judge and the risk of judges abusing the immense power vested in them, immense power, um, is, a, is a very, very good um, question, certainly. And I'm more than biased in answering that because, you know, watch out who you put there. But you <laughs> know, beyond that, um, there are, I think, institutional factors to be taken into account which from the start limit the power of judging, which is the responsive nature of the activity. Um, we're never the first. Um, so um, as an example regarding um, the uh, shift of the power to define, the power of definition in the global landscape, the first to shift these powers is usually politics and parliament. And we come rather late to that picture. So we feel, sometimes feel like those, you know, still catching the fundamental rights level before it all floods off to some, I don't know, what post-legal post, uh, post world. Um, so the responsivity of the nature of judging, I think, is an important factor to take into account. Um, depending on legal culture, legal training, and the calls on your um, way of filling the office, um, judges or courts are specifically bound in the U.S. 
legal culture and the discourse, the, 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 the way the discourse evolves is very, very different from a continental legal setting and the German legal tradition. So um, there are many actors in a society responsible for binding courts to the text they have to apply, to the mandate they have, to an ethics of adjudication beyond, you know, it's, it's not that we put courts and we leave them alone and have them do what they want to do and hope for the best. We have to encircle them in a discursive frame which keeps them at bay. We are human beings and powerful institutions. So what I'm, what I'm trying to allude to is watch out for institutional design, keep being critical, and keep litigating. And that's the last factor. Litigation educates judges and courts and litigation is also a, a fundamentally responsible act um, to engage in. So if there's a, which is inconceivable, a problematic court, <laughs> don't bring the case. <laughs> if there is a court uh, which steps out of bounds, uh, be critical, be, be, be a voice out there, because all I wanted to say tonight as well is we read the news, we listen, we react to that. These are not abstract actors out there. Certainly historically, and you mentioned a Nazi Germany experience, if the context allows and the judges are willing to abuse their power, problem out there. But there are many, I'm, I'm referring to a theory by Heberle, a German legal theorist, who said, you know, the constitution and constitutional culture is in the hands of many. And not just, and this applies to all law. Law is in the hands of many, not just the judges in the courts. There are many actors driving that. There are many actors who can block it. So there's more to that. But that maybe would be my social realism, law and society studies answer to that question. Thank you. Thank you, Susanna. So let's have another round. I've got two people on my list. I think we could probably fit in three. Is there somebody else who would like to? Kai and Neve. Okay, I'm going to do two more rounds then. So I'm going to go Joe, and I'm sorry I don't know your name. So first of all, Joe Merkins, and then I'll come to you, then Susanna, and then we'll have another round of um, Kai, Holler, and Neve done. Thank you. Um, my name is Joe Merkins from the LSE Law Department. Um, I think where the first questioner had a point was um, when he suggested that, well, it is true that Germans do look at current political events from the lens or through the lens of the Constitution and frame um, what they see in the language of rights. And that is something that um, the United Kingdom doesn't do. It... Uh, Looks at um, the same matters, I suppose, through the lens of uh, or through the lens of politics. And I wonder if, um, if I wonder if they don't have a point. So the phenomena that you describe, whether it's the uh, European crisis or migration, the rise of the alternative for Deutschland in Germany or Brexit, um, you say that they reflect constitutional law in turbulent times. Um, but could, could you comment on maybe the failure of politics here? And you're very harsh on, on, the, on the constitutional courts and, uh, and you're aware that judges need to be restrained. But is this not also symptomatic of a failure of politics and political imagination? And instead of, okay, you emphasize the value of procedural law for constitutional lawyers, 
But what about a political vision and leadership? Are those not also absent here? My name is Fernando, and I'm doing the LLM here at the LSE. My question is in regard to, to public policy making. Why sh it seems to me like a paradox that judges, they talk about the prevalence of human rights, but yet when it comes to public policy, they self-restrain. So this space is basically for politicians and, techni and technocrats to decide, and that's the space where politics eh, with rights may be enforced or not. So I'm, I'm thinking about, for example, absolute rights. We have made the taboo, for example, on torture. Shouldn't we make a similar taboo on, so, on social rights, like and take those like very core rights beyond public discussions? Shouldn't or we should just leave all that to the democratic discussion? Um, thank you again for the questions. I, I, I start with the last one because that's a doctrinally for me sort of easy answer. The reason why our judgments on the dignified minimum existence are based on the right to dignity because, is because this is an absolute right. Um, and one could have argued all these cases based on equality, the right to health, the right to education, which is all in the Constitution. But the court, the Senate at the time, decided to base it on dignity to remove a particular segment of what is really the very basic fundamental need, remove that from political relativation, from you know, balancing, from going back and forth, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the German court, if I, if I understood that correctly, created something very close to the prohibition of torture, the prohibition of the death penalty, the prohibition of treating somebody undignified in a material, social, social way. So it's the kind of the core definition, the key, the baseline of what social rights should mean. And from then on, from there on, you can move then to equal access to education, which but then is equal access to education. You balance this, you limit this, you remove it, you do this and that and da 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 da. If it's not dignity, it's not absolute. You can you can play with it a bit more. But the the the, the interesting doctrinal development in those decisions was there is something which can never, ever be discussed, removed, or relativized. And the interesting point about that decision I was talking about today was not even when it comes to foreigners, although they never paid any taxes, never contributed to that thing, et cetera, et cetera, which is a tricky issue for, for political choices. So the, the absolute nature remained in place, even under the pressure of international, like, global solidarity, which is inconceivable to most people, particularly to voters, seemingly. So, so th that was the, the absolute nature reserved for a particular segment. Everything else, another, dis another very, complicated, very complicated discussion. But so th there was a clear line we drew between the, the absolute reserve and the liberty balancing, proportionality, rest of the game. Also to say, we're not going to fuss with everything out there. We're not going to intervene in every little detail. This is for politics. And that's the answer to the, to, the, to the first question, politics. I didn't talk about the task of politics today and, you know, uh, the developments there. Because I'm a judge and I, I tend to think I want to think about what I do or talk about what I do. But... 
what I wanted to emphasize in talking about the euro judgments, or briefly about the euro judgments, but also about the welfare benefit judgments, is that what we did is we framed it not only in the language of rights, but immediately introduced the language of democracy. And that is saying that right after I said there's an absolute standard, an interesting move. Because what we say is it's absolute, yet it's for the democratic legislature to define what it really means. To some, that may sound like a contradiction in terms because it's for the democratic legislature, it's up for politics, and you know it can be voted out or in or whatever. But in fact, what we try to do, and you may, you know, political scientists may want to reframe it that way, we we took parliament and politicians by their mandate and their duty and their obligation and called on them to deliver. That's why we apply a principle in conjunction with the human right because the principle is the call on them. It's their obligation. They have to. It's very rare for a court to say, politicians, please act. But the principles allow us to say, in the Constitution, there is a call on you to do that, which is you know, we are a welfare state, we are a rule of law state, we are a democratic state. And you have to deliver on that. You cannot, you know, a little, you know, off the record put, you cannot sit around in Berlin and wait for things to fall apart. You have to act. It's your job. My job is to decide a case when it comes to me. Your job is to act preventively in the political realm. And so we threw the ball back into the political realm to call on political gestaltung, political activity in, in filling these promises of the Constitution with life. We are, and I guess the Maastricht and Lisbon Treaty judgments are then the more interesting to read. There's, there's some visionary language in there. But judges are not only afraid to mess with budgets and other, other functions of government's power, but vision and leadership we, we, would not, we would not go in the vicinity of that. <laughs> also, for German to say leadership in German would be an impossibility. I can say leadership in... I, no, I, I, I mean it. I mean it. To, to understand that from my perspective of a sitting justice, what I do deeply care about is what we call a functioning, a lively democracy, which is certainly not leadership. It shall create a vision... So it's more Habermasian, if you want, than Dworkinian, to put one alternative out there. It is more engaged with, with a variety of actors out there who all have to do their jobs. And what, what we did in the Euro judgments in particular, and in the voting rights judgments, the last ones, the second Senate handed down, is say, Parliament, could you please... I mean, and not in some subcommittee, and not very late, and not, you know, unwillingly, but could you please do what you need to do? People were, let's put it that way, members of parliament were not all enchanted with these <laughs> judgments, but from a legal theory or political theory point of view, it was an important effort to combine rights language with democracy language and not stick to a more, to me, common law American rights frame only. This is not a rights frame only. This is a democ democracy-driven rights protection frame, and that's a slightly different frame to me. So, just responding to something. Thank you, Susanna. So, could we keep these last two questions? I'd really like to bring them in, but very, very 
quick and then we'll allow Susanna to say yes or no. <laughs> so first of all, Kai Moller there and then Neve Dunn here in the front row. Thank you. Yeah, I'm uh, Kai Moller from the LSE Law Department <clears throat> and I um, want to pass on a question to you that my students often ask me and I don't have an answer but I think you may be able to help me with that. Be the scope of rights has become so enormous and so the scope of judicial review has become so enormous too. There is almost no law that Parliament could pass that does not limit some right. And therefore, basically any law can be challenged before courts and ultimately the Constitutional Court. But, uh, that, but many of these laws raise uh, or are based on very difficult empirical questions, economic questions, medical issues, whatever. I mean, it's just very complicated stuff. So as I, as I understand it, what the German court would often do is to invite experts. Mm -hmm. So my question is about, about the role of these experts, because it seems that they have a lot of power, or even choosing the expert might decide the case. Do you take one who, whom you know believes one thing or the other thing about a complicated economic question? So, yeah, that's my question to you. Thank you. And Neve. Thank you. Um, so Neve Dunn, also the Law Department here. Um, my question sort of picks up the flip side of Ewan's question. What does the good judge do with the bad constitution? Um, I'm Irish, and if you had, instead of the German constitution, the Irish constitution in your pocket, you'd have a document that says the woman's place is in the home. It would enshrine the absence of a right to an abortion. Is there anything a constitutional judge can do with a document that they may not, as maybe as a radical feminist, perhaps agree with or find palatable in any way? <laughs> Thank you. Two great questions. <laughs> I have to say you have two minutes. Yes no. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, another hour tonight. Well, whatever. Um, one is the heuristic challenge of the practice of adjudication. There is a heuristic challenge out there because we're not only applying the law, we're dealing with the world, and the world consists of very many complicated aspects, and I'm only trained to understand that small segment of it. So in some way, we're also dealing with the thing everybody's dealing with. We're living in a knowledge society and in the increase of knowledge in abundant form, et cetera, et cetera. One way we try, one way the procedure tells us to try to deal with this is choosing experts, inviting experts to the court. So there is no culture of amicus curiae briefs. Nobody writes to us. Some people send us articles when a case is pending, but usually nobody writes to us just, you know, because they think we should listen to them. But we invite experts. And there's diversity on the bench. Very important because it's the Senate, eight people on with equal standing and very diverse views right from the start because picked by different political parties, four different backgrounds, four different biographies, four different leanings, diversity on men and women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Diversity on the bench, there could be more. Oh, I need another half hour. There could be more, <laughs> but there is some at least. And that diversity on the bench tends to procedurally ensure that the choice of experts is not overly biased. Certainly, there's still limits to this. We're all lawyers, so you know, there's, there's a limit to that one. But um, interestingly, uh, in the history of the German Federal Constitutional Court, very many sociolegal studies people became justices. There's a Bielefeld strain, Grimm, Limbach, some others, some famous justices were all law and society people, Briede, um, which is interesting because we tend to carry to the court 
me as a partly trained political scientist or others as partly trained other people, additional knowledge in selecting experts. We do not replace them, but you develop a knowledge and expertise in selecting experts. Um, so that is one. Um, and there is certainly a technique in adjudication leaving some issues to expertise, which is not leaving them to majorities, which is very, very different. Risky and can be wrong, but certainly that, that, that is a challenge which we're trying to meet with, with this. And diversity on the bench, I think, is a, uh, is a big one. Um, the other question is a little more difficult to answer. Because, let me put it in an anecdotal way. When I was elected to the court, or put up for election to the court, um, the, con the, the tradition in Germany, the new tradition in Germany, is you're, the night before the vote is taken in the Judicial Committee in Parliament, you're invited by the political parties to be interviewed by those who take the vote on you. You know, they have the right to know you beforehand, right? So you go to all the parties, and I went to the Conservative Party, and certainly I was nominated by the Green Party and was a known radical feminist before and an out lesbian, which was not in the papers, interestingly, but known. So I went there and thought, okay, maybe that's going to be it. And one question was, uh, do you have an agenda? And will you, put it, will you apply it in court? Will you abuse your office? And that's exactly, I mean, that's what they wanted to know. They were polite enough not to ask it in that way. And so I said, you know, I'm in a lucky situation that I like the text of the Constitution and I can, you know, I'm a good lawyer. I can deal with most of it. I mean, you're trained lawyers. So that's the first answer. You're trained lawyers. I mean, tell me more about, you know, the definite meaning of the text. You can do a lot with a lot of ancient words. So, so there's the one lawyer ability, strong argument ability, convincing argument ability, because you're working in a collegial setting. That's the other one. You don't do very different from academics. You never write a text alone anymore. That's a very, very different experience. So, but, but there you can do things. You can move things um, a lot. And the other one was that... Um, I, I said, and I promised them, I will keep that promise. I will not go beyond what I can legitimately see in that text. But I may then encourage the constitution amending majority to act. So, but then that is not for me. No, that would go too far. Uh, embedded constitutionalism, European Convention of Human Rights, offers some options out there. There's more material to work with. So there's, <laughs> there's also an opportunity, but again, convincing arguments, lawyerly um, skills um, are, are desperately needed in those tricky situations, I have to say. Well, that's a wonderful note on which to act um, to end this <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> yes, end this wonderful lecture. Susanna, I have a feeling uh, in terms of democracy, if I took a vote now, they'd vote for that other half hour. But we can't do that. We're so grateful to you. You've spoken so openly and so thoughtfully about your work on the Constitutional Court. It's very rare to hear uh, a sitting justice speak in that way, and it's most, we're most grateful to you. I'd also just like to say a thank you, uh, which I suspect will be shared by all my law teacher colleagues here, especially those of us who've taught legal theory you know from your own experience as a teacher that it can be hard to sell legal theory to, student, to law students. And the line that I always take, which I think is absolutely exemplified by the way you've talked about your work on the court, is that we all approach law with an implicit set of theoretical assumptions. And you've 
without in any way doing it in a heavy-handed way. You've, you've given us your theory of adjudication, and you've given us a real sense of what it's like and the human side of being in that position. And I think we're just really very, very grateful to you. Thank you.